Welcome to today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. I mean, there's a lot of talk about a virus. Like back in March, everybody was talking about, oh, we're going to have a virus. You know, we're going to have a cure real soon. There's going to be a virus. So why don't you tell us about, talk to us about the reality of um, what it takes to um, identify a virus that will be effective against a COVID-19 and what the prospects are for doing that anytime soon. Well, again, again, this is still evolving. I want to make that point clear because I don't want to be pessimistic and I don't want to be optimistic. Uh, We want to be careful. Uh, A vaccine, there are over 120 candidates for vaccines and people are working, drug companies are working on it. Um, It's being worked on across the world. So, if we're not careful, the first vaccines may not be as successful as we would like to think. Uh, On the other hand, they may be more successful. So the question is, uh, will those 120 candidates uh, produce what we need for them to produce? Can't answer that. If we've got um, a dozen candidates for a vaccine that are in clinical trials, then we can expect within the next six months to a year to have possibilities. Um, And that's what we're looking at. You have to go through the FDA. There's a rational structure to these things because as you know, people often rush out and say they have a cure. um, And then it turns out they don't. Uh, They have a treatment. It turns out they don't. Uh, The treatment is worth worse than the disease. So we have all of these things that we have to deal with. Uh, So the FDA by uh, definition is trying to move move carefully and deliberately, but quickly, if we can Mm -hmm. have all of those words in the same voice. All all that at one time. All that at one time. So there are these dozen candidates in various phases of the FDA uh, trial. So our hope is that we will have something in the next six months to a year. But in a sense, it's kind of meaningless because what we should be learning from this is, as the phrase goes, we're all in this together. We are all in this together. Uh, I don't care whether you're in the hollows of Appalachia, the barrios of Los Angeles, the, the um, ghettos or the neighborhoods of Washington, D.C., uh, however you want to characterize it, uh, private islands, um, unless you really want to stay in your home 24-7, you're going to interact with other people. And as long as you interact with other people, you're dependent on those other people doing what they're supposed to do. And that's what we've learned from air travel, train travel, buses, planes, um, You don't know who's going to get it. As you see uh, in the media, rich people have gotten it, poor people have gotten it, old people have gotten it, young people Mm -hmm. have gotten it. Uh, And so this notion that I can run and hide is a fiction. Or as they say, 
you can run, but you can't hide. Can't hide. Yeah. Well, well, we've seen um, by now that obviously the United States is is struggling with this um, because we've had you know some big cities and some states we've had them you know try to phase into opening up and then they had to pull back and retreat and shut down again because of spikes in the disease. But we've also seen countries outside of the United States who have been able to at least arrest the spread of it. They, if not, you know, they, they, we know there's no cure, but they've arrested the spread enough to open back up their economies. What's the biggest difference between what we're experiencing there and, and what these other countries who were able to open up have done? What's the biggest difference? And how can we get to that? <laughs> yeah, quick. Well, back to we're all in this together phrase. We in the United States value our personal liberty, value our ability to do whatever it is we want to do as long as we're not, quote, hurting anybody else to the extent where um, that's a problem in uh, an area where infectious disease is applicable. So we've got countries like Finland that uh, have a few cases, they managed to get it under control, Cambodia, Cyprus, uh, Iceland, Ireland, Jamaica, uh, Jordan, Latvia, Lithuania, Cuba, uh, Cambodia, as I mentioned, they're, they're doing it. Um, and then we've got the United States. We've got uh, some Nordic countries that are trying to do it, um, that they're making progress. So Canada, Austria, China, France, Germany, Italy, they're doing it. And then you've got uh, the United States. So you have to ask, and the United States is not alone in not doing well. The United States ranks up there with uh, Brazil and Bulgaria and Chile and Colombia and Bolivia, Armenia and Argentina. But we've got the greatest nation in the world and we're not doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not doing it because as you found out when these other states renewed their restrictions because <laughs> people went whole hog and said, I'm not gonna wash my hands. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to socially distance. So there, well, mm. they're not doing it. So if right. you want to know how we're going to change the outcome of this pandemic, then we have to change our respective behaviors. We all have to own it. And we all have to say, we have to do our share. Fortunately, most people are doing it. The problem is you need more than most people doing it. Mm. You need a lot of people doing it. Yeah. You need everybody actually to do it. So, you know, there are just so many questions as employers, as communities struggle with what do we do? I mean, school systems, for example, um, do, you know, going back to school in the fall, kind of the mm -hmm. political football right now of, oh, yes, we want students in, in the classroom in the fall versus, ugh, that looks pretty risky. What are some of the factors that organizations should consider in assessing the risk? Well, you have to look at your workplace and you have to look at your workforce. Mm -hmm. So your target population. 
both WHO and CDC and coupled with OSHA have guidelines that companies should look at if they're going to um, address this as an issue. But you start with workplace, workforce, and your context. So if you interact with a lot of customers because you are retail activity, that requires one approach. If you are manufacturing activity, that may require another approach. Back to the issue of people having an opportunity to wash their hands, people have an opportunity to wear the mask, people have an opportunity to socially distance, people have an opportunity to wipe down their work, for, work uh, site. Can you do that? What some universities are doing, I'm a professor at Santa Clara University, we are allowing some professors to teach remotely. So, and in fact, part of the lockdown had a number of uh, employees who were working remotely. So if you've got type of economy in your workplace where people can work remotely, then your question is, well, should we continue that? If they can't do that because you are retail, for instance, and you've got to peddle your products with face-to-face, that's an issue. So you need a different strategy. If you've got a mixed business where you can do some remote and some face-to-face, then that face-to-face has to deal with the issue of disease containment or infection Mm -hmm. containment, infection control. What do you think the university systems need to do? Uh, You know, you're in a university system and, and we all know, you know, half of college life is academic affairs and the other half is student affairs and both of them provide knowledge and growth during those uh, years that you're, you're matriculating. And so how do we do this? How do, how do university systems achieve this um, under these circumstances? The issue is risk management. There's a zero risk. You can't have a situation where there's zero risk. So what can the universities do? They, well, they're proposing to do exactly what we've been talking about. Have some classes move online. Reduce the, the volume of students in any situation. Uh, use shields so that professors aren't exposed to the students or the students aren't exposed to each other. But so it, that's, the, that's the academic side. What about the whole student affairs side? Everything else okay, so, with the college experience. Okay. You want to separate your college's university from your um, uh, elementary, junior, middle school, and high school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because by the time you're 18, what? You're telling me what to do? You've got people who are view themselves as adults and they're going to do what they want to do. So part of what we're trying to do is infuse them with the notion of personal responsibility. Well, I don't, I don't want to beat this into the ground, but I will tell you that part of the sale, the sale job as, as a parent of a recent high school grad, part of the sale job of universities are these wonderful 21st century living and learning communities. Mm-hmm. And so the whole living part is a huge, huge piece. And, you know, we're, yep. we're paying for that. that that's, you know, that's what you're paying for and that's what you want. And that's, yeah. what, and that's what your stu- your children want. They want that to get the heck out of Dodge. So, um, but the schools also have a responsibility. So that responsibility is not just their responsibility. As a parent, you need to make sure, let's say you're a high school student going to college, that they're aware of these realities. And so the question is, can they contain themselves? Can they behave responsibly? 
Uh, and maybe this will be the true test. Remember, this is a case of first impression. Not since 1918 have we dealt with this. You can ask, well, how did we deal with the flu? Well, they didn't deal with the flu because, uh, you know, <laughs> I've been to many universities. We never really adequately dealt with the flu. We had the swine flu. We had the this flu and then that flu. We didn't deal with the flu. H1N1, we didn't deal with the flu. Mm-hmm. But we have to deal with this one. If you would think about it, how many of the college presidents, the professors, the, the fraternities and sororities were dealing with this in 1918? So it's a case of first impression. So if we, yeah. go to, if we pursue it looking for who's responsible for the problem, then we've got a problem by ourselves. If we pursue it as if we're all in this together, and I hate using that, that phrase, it's almost trite, but it's true then we all have a responsibility. And that's the only way we're going to keep these infectious diseases from affecting us. Because right now we've got SARS-CoV-2. What about uh, SARS-CoV-3 or some other infectious disease? If we don't have these uh, themes Mm -hmm. of we're all in it together and we all need to do some things, then we've got a problem. And just because you're 22 and healthy doesn't mean that you can't uh, be a silent carrier or you can't get the disease. Uh, So what should you be doing? Yeah. You know, in future episodes, we're going to be talking more about what employers should be doing, but certainly flexibility is got to be, has got to be a key in terms of addressing, addressing issues and, you know, it's almost an employer-by-employer employer response to some extent, depending on the kind of workforce, the kind of workplace. It's been my observation that many employers who are able to allow people to continue to work from home have said, okay, you, we're going to be flexible. You can continue mm-hmm. to um, to work from home. But I do think that flexibility is certainly going to be key in in going forward. A couple of other technical things I wanted to ask you about. Talk to us about contact uh, contact tracing, because that's something that um, employers are looking at. You know, there's contact tracing, there's taking temperatures. You know, what are some of the scientific you know, things out there that employers can, should be doing to act responsibly. So let's start with contact tracing. If you test positive, then, and if you're at a, an orthodox facility, then your name would be turned over to the health department. Health department will assign someone to, in, to interview you so that they can determine the circumstances and the conditions under which you might have been exposed. Remember, a lot of people won't, depends on their behavior. So if I went to a wild and unruly party uh, with 50 people, I may not remember who was there. But the whole notion of contact tracing is you track down all the people who were possibly exposed. And if they get tested, then you determine the prevalence of the exposure. So if I know Sam Smith is positive and he was at the party or he was at the workplace or he was at the wherever, mm-hmm. then what I do from there is to find out whoever Sam Smith interacted with. 
So that's where the contact tracing comes in. And then you go from that person to that person. So you have this whole web uh, cascade of interactions so that you get a better sense of the prevalence of the disease, the infectivity of the disease, and what's going on in our community. So if 50 people were there and, and only Sam and Susie got uh, uh, converted, that means that uh, the disease isn't spreading that rapidly in this particular population. If 50 people were there and 15 people got uh, converted, then in that event was the only event to which you could attribute that uh, conversion, then you realize that you've got something that's more infectious. Remember, you also are dealing with a virus that can mutate. So you also need to be able to keep that in mind. So part of this whole effort is to track down somebody who may have been exposed. Um, were you on that plane? Were you in that car? Were you on that bus? Were you at that party? Were you at that event? and to see how many other people were infected because those people can go on and infect other people. So I inform you, yo, you were positive. You need to chill out for two weeks. That becomes an important thing, but you don't know that. If, uh, and we've had uh, cases where people just merrily went along their way. They've been exposed, they converted, and, uh, and then they go and they expose other people, some of whom may be very vulnerable. So it's like a multiplying effect. It's a multiplying effect. effect. That's right. Yeah. It's definitely a multiplying effect, and, and it, it's a major uh, concern. So with contact tracing, we can address that issue. Now, the employer doesn't do the contact tracing normally. Um, that's generally delegated because there are confidentiality issues. There are all sorts mm. of other issues. What some employers are doing is doing the temperature check, which is not a great way. It is something, but uh, it's not really a reliable way of determining whether someone has been exposed, is mm. uh, a carrier. But it is, if someone is symptomatic, um, that's helpful from that point of view. You can send them back home, but it's not a foolproof technique. But it does show that the employer is doing the best he or she yeah. can to address the issue. Because, again, we're all in this together. We want employers to be responsible and flexible, but they mm -hmm. can only behave, can only do so much. Yeah, um, I think I think a lot of the employers who have... Uh, started returning their workforce back to a workplace environment are taking taking baby steps. I recently had an experience in the TV and film industry where they opened the set back up and they had extreme steps that they were taking not only to test uh, to do a temperature test of everyone entering the set but keeping people socially distanced while on set as well as doing periodic safety briefings to remind people you know more than one safe safety briefing a day to remind everyone what what it is we needed we needed to do but nevertheless there's still a lot of employers who are still trying to sort it out. And I think that's what we're going to be talking about in our next episode. Right, Barbara? Yes, absolutely. Information, sharing that information and making that information readily available. And I like this notion that uh, you describe constantly reminding people of this. Because again, we're lax and we want to hang out with our friends. We want to chit chat and as well as get the job done. And uh, we need to be reminded. Yeah. Way, minimize the risk. 
Yeah, it certainly represents a huge social and cultural shift that not only uh, we will have to make and practice in our personal lives, but absolutely in the workplace. And depending upon where you work and what you do and the work population, your workforce. You may have these cultural dynamics that, are, that people find hard to transcend. And so you have to take that into consideration. So if you've got people with uh, cultural rituals that they hate to break, uh, then you've got to uh, speak to that because the workplace then becomes uh, a place for communication. Well, certainly, you know, we, we encourage employers to look at science, which is part of the reason we're talking with you today. What are some of the best sources of information for employers to go to for reliable scientific information on what's going on? You know, what guidance can you give? Because there's so many myths out there. I know, I'm sure that both of you, like me, heard all kinds of conspiracy theories. And is it 5G? I mean, there are just so many theories out there that were coming at us left and right. So if you If you want reliable information, where do you go? All right. That's a very good uh, point. So depending on your staffing pattern, you would have someone check at least weekly. Uh, The CDC, it has information both for professionals, well, actually, for professionals, for employers, for consumers. So it's all broken down. And it's all available. So if you are somebody who's very knowledgeable and you don't think that uh, getting information in simple terms uh, befits you, then you can step up. WHO, same thing. Information for professionals, information for employers, the business community and government officials, information for consumers. Um, If you want to know most recent data, Johns Hopkins University has a website. You have some newspapers who are capturing the information from the CDC and WHO and the academic literature. So those websites also contain information. Your state health departments often are information brokers. So you can get information from the state health department, just put in state health department in your state. If you're from Maryland, if you're from Idaho, if you're from California, if you're from Texas, you'll find a wealth of information about COVID-19 on those websites. Some of that state-based websites will also give you information about where you can get your uh, COVID-19 test. So Good information from CDC, state health departments, and WHO. Other information, uh, a number of your popular media sites uh, are tracking this. Now, the problem with the further away you get from the health departments, the CDC, and WHO, you start getting into the conspiracy theories, and you find people just pretending that um, it isn't true. And we've had certain situations where these pundits have, you know, talk about the disease as if it was a fiction and then, oops, they get it themselves. Or their family member. Or their family member gets it. Mm -hmm. So, and then they're singing a slightly different song. But I think people need to use the official sites. And then, you know, if you want to listen to the conspiracy theories, you can. But uh, protect yourself. 
And then you can have a debate whether enough resources were made available, whether this political party versus that political party moved fast enough or didn't move, et cetera. But as citizens and as uh, employers, um, businesses, you want to deal with what's best for your particular group and denying that there is no pandemic is a surefire way of causing havoc in your workforce. You know, one of the challenges if you're a multi-state employer or even a global employer is just trying to figure out what's going on in various jurisdictions. And I know that there are some organizations, some law firms that are tracking exactly what's going on in terms of the stay-at-home orders, the quarantines, whatever. And we'll post those to our, our website so that folks can take a look at those because it's so challenging if you have employees in a variety of jurisdictions right. even to know okay well these people can't go to work these people can't go to work these you know it's it's quite challenging and indeed so depending upon the employer if you are doing business in only a few countries those countries will probably have websites also the issue is uh, is the inf information uh, in a language you can understand. Mm -hmm. So this is where the, your consultants and law firms might be helpful. Uh, they can translate or arrange to have translated that information. You want to be, you want to make sure you're able to read it. Uh, uh, WHO often will in, do the translations. So again, multiple responsible sites focusing on the science and the public health focusing on what the communities are doing. And so that, that's, that, that's helpful. What's your view about travel? I mean, a lot of employers have um, pretty much stopped non-essential travel um, <clears throat> through the end of the year in some cases. What is the risk of, say, airline travel at this point? Well, it's, uh, now that we know that uh, this is an airborne disease, traveling yeah. in an airplane is at a higher risk. Uh, some airlines have made efforts to allow as many people as reasonable to travel. Southwest puts people every other seat. Other airlines have been chock full of bodies. Uh, some airlines have insisted that you wear a mask in order to board. Other airlines are in more interested in the cost of the seat. So they yeah. allow people to do not wear masks. So it is more hazardous, but if you got to travel, you got to travel. So again, your risk goes mm -hmm. up. But and again, yeah, again, when you think about the impact on um, businesses, uh, particularly those who operate globally or those who operate, you know, across multiple states in the United States with these individual jurisdictions putting in place rules on who can and cannot come into the jurisdiction. I mean, that's totally changed up uh, some of the mobility, um, you know, cult the mobility culture that a lot of corporations have followed in terms of having, you know, multinational, you know, business units where they have one executive that travels between countries and things like that. Well, now that executive, if he's, originating in the United States, there's a whole bunch of countries right now that are not going to allow anyone from the United States to come in. But that's Barbara's point. Uh, you need somebody who's tracking that because if they're not going to accept me, I'm not going. Mm 
So <laughs> the issue isn't that. The issue is if they do accept me, what's my risk? So yeah. uh, the, if the country insists on a quarantine, Israel was requiring, and I don't know if that's still in, in effect, it was requiring a 14-day quarantine. Yeah. So, like, you, like South Korea, my, um, my daughter is stationed over in South Korea. She's been over there since July with the United States Army. And her husband had to finish up his tour of duty here in the United States. So he just recently, this past weekend, was able to actually move to South Korea and start a new assignment there with his family. His first 14 days there, he literally is under quarantine in, in some barracks. So he can't join his family immediately. He has to stay in the barracks. And as a funny side note, my daughter happens to be head of the um, human resources organization that intakes all of the soldiers. And so any soldier coming into the peninsula reports into her for the first 14 days. And so we just were having a good laugh in the family about how her husband now has to report to her for the, <laughs> for the first 14 days that he's over there. <laughs> so, but that's, that's exactly the point. So you do, as Barbara points out, and as you're observing, you need to know what the host country's policies are. But you also need to know the risk, even if the host country says, fine, come on in. Um, then the question is, who are, the, who are these other people that are on the plane? Who am I traveling with who have nothing to do with my company? What policies yeah. do they have? Do they wipe down uh, the uh, plane? Now, there are some people who very wisely advise you to make sure you have Pick hands. your own. Right. And your wipes and you wipe down your... Now, depending on who you see yourself as being, I mean, if you're flying first class, do you do something as tacky as wipe down your whole area? Well, oh well, you get nothing sick. tacky about that nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> if you get sick, then that you know that first class trip suddenly uh, loses its appeal because you're deathly ill. Um, so that's why some people do that. So they bring their own water, they bring, or they make sure they get uh, uh, water uh, at the airport, uh, bottled water and not on the plane. Uh, Southwest no longer hands out um, uh, the, the multiple snacks they used to hang in. Mm -hmm. Others are using sort of, you know, meals ready to eat. <laughs> uh, MREs. MREs uh, as a way of uh, dealing with it. So again, you want to check out the airline before you get on it. You want to check out the train before you get on it. You want to know what their policies are. Um, if they've got very um, casual policies where people are sitting any place they want, they don't have to wear a mask, then that's a much more hazardous situation. If they've got more restrictive policies, that that's less hazardous. Nevertheless, your risk goes up because you have the issue of airborne, you have the issue of surface uh, contact, uh, how long the virus remains on a surface, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. so. Well, it's, it's certainly a lot. And um, as we mentioned earlier, employers definitely will have to turn a practical eye towards the workplace environment and reimagining it and redefining it in this post-COVID-19 existence that looks like we're going to be in for a while. Well, it can last up to two years. And so, yes, it will be a while. We've got to get through the flu season, i.e. distinguishing between COVID, 
SARS-CoV-2 and the annual flu, which can right. have two or three permutations. Right. So you're not, you know, people who get the flu vaccine will often complain that, gee, I had the vaccine and I still have the flu, which shows you the limitations of vaccines. If the thing mutates, then you got a new right. version. A new strain. A new strain. So we will know a lot more after this first year. The whole notion of communication, information, tracking, and personal behavior, as well as employer behavior, becomes critical. And so, again, we're all in this together, again, using that phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, and it means that everybody has a task to perform. Uh, employees have a task to perform. Employers have a task to perform. Public health authorities have a task to perform. Government authorities have a task to perform. And depending on how well each of those does his or her task, it will determine how well we do in the long run with regard to this pandemic. You know, Dr. Clark has made it clear that the um, COVID-19 has presented one of the greatest challenges that we've had to face in our lifetimes, for sure. And certainly employers are really going to struggle, have struggled and will continue to struggle with what the best approach is to maintaining a workforce, keeping their folks working. How do you do that? And, you know, we can look at regulations, um, whether it be EEOC regulations, OSHA regulations, um, the Department of Labor regulations, in terms of giving some guidance. But going back to what I said earlier, it's really a matter of flexibility and understanding what's going on from a scientific perspective, as well as looking at um, what's going on in terms of the guidance that we're getting from these various agencies on how to proceed. Yeah, I think thinking outside of the box is going to be a very necessary practice that employers, as well as the people who advise them, like their HR teams and their legal teams will have to do moving forward. And avoid succumbing to the mythologies associated with this. Do these practical things that we've been talking about. And then I'm mm -hmm. sure when you two start talking about the regulatory and the legal issues, practical things will help address those issues. Well, in our next um, episode, we're going to take a closer look at a list of the adjustments and the precautions that will now define today's workplace in this post-coronavirus era that or in. And we'd certainly like to thank Dr. Clark for providing us with so much valuable information and insights about COVID-19 from a scientific perspective. It's very valuable for employers to understand this science. And so thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. Pleasure thank, thank you, Dr. Clark. Pleasure right. Well, Dr. Clark, you certainly have provided us with a lot of information in a very easy to understand manner so that as employers, we can, and, and the people who advise them, we can actually wrap our hands around this big issue and use that as some great context to solving the problems of the workplace uh, now that we have to make these cultural and so social shifts. So thank you so very much for um, spending time with us today and giving us all of that great information. And thank you for inviting me, Melinda and uh, Barbara. 
the pleasure was mine. It is very important that all of us recognize the, our respective roles in addressing the spread of uh, COVID-19 disease. You've been listening to today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reedshan. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.